When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code AUDIO to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code AUDIO at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code AUDIO. Sound the gifting panic alarm. We've all been there. You need to find the perfect gift. You have absolutely zero ideas and you don't know where to start. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. Just answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like, and gift mode gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Imagine pages of artisan espresso mugs for the coffee connoisseur in your life. Or for the pickleballer, customized paddle covers in every shade imaginable. Etsy's got you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try gift mode on Etsy now. Hey, everybody. We, we got the gang together, Andy Slavitt and Lori Garrett, with whom we've been talking COVID uh, since early 2020, a little over a million American deaths to go. But it, it's, it's over. The official COVID emergency in the United States will be declared over on May 11th. Andy Slavitt, whom you'll remember, led the Center for Medicare and Medicaid for the last two years of the Obama administration. And during the first four months of the Biden administration was the senior advisor to the White House COVID response team. During that time, vaccinating 140 million Americans. Uh, giving some perspective on where Americans are right now, Andy uh, says uh, during our conversation, very early in the conversation, he says that uh, two years into the Spanish flu uh, of a century ago, that people just had had enough of it and stopped taking precautions uh, about not getting sick, and that uh, the third year they had the greatest number of fatalities. So. Um, Speaking of fatalities now, Lori Garrett, uh, whom you may remember, won the prestigious Pulitzer Prize for explanatory journalism. That is an amazing uh, Pulitzer. And she writes regularly for for Foreign Affairs uh, magazine. So we have uh, Lori on to explain things. And Lori explains that a sizable majority of Americans uh, who will be dying of COVID in the next year will be people in red areas of, of red states. There, there are still almost 20% of Americans who have not been vaccinated. I have, have to think my audience is vaccinated and boosted and will continue to get boosted. Right now, uh, COVID is almost all, it's uniformly the Omicron variant, and uh, that is what the vax is now and, uh, and the booster. So get boosted if you haven't. It's not 100%. You can still still get it. And if you have very terrible comorbidities, be careful. But uh, I've been boosted on schedule. And uh, in December, I got a mild case of COVID. I had to cancel a show in Los Angeles at that time, uh, which was a bummer. I uh, rescheduled it and did it in February. And I've had a bit 
of the long COVID, I think, if you ask me. For example, if you listen closely during the podcast, I can't remember Andy or Lori's names. And I forgot during a little period there that we were talking about COVID. Speaking of which, uh, and I forgot this, the, the FBI announced this past week that they believe that COVID did come from a Chinese lab. There's, there's now all different schools of thoughts here. The CDC thinks differently, different U.S. agencies with different views on this, mainly still primarily that it was animal to human, that a bat or some animal got the COVID strain and that someone went to a wet market in Wuhan and got a bat for dinner and brought it home and maybe undercooked the bat. We don't know. Don't do that. Don't get a bat, but if you do, just thoroughly cook the bat. And I blame the Trump administration, which reduced the number of the CDC in China right off the bat, speaking of the bat. All that this means is that we'll definitely see the House Republicans call Fauci. <laughs> so uh, we have that to look forward to. We have a great one for a change. Andy Slavitt and Lori Garrett back again the best way to learn a language immersion living where the language is spoken and using it every day but if that's not in the cards this year you can still learn a language the second best way and that's with Babbel Babbel's quick 10 minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example, let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that, means, that means I would also like the soup. And that way, I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment with highly anticipated new releases. The time is now more than ever to embrace the breathtaking, sinister, and shocking tales that can enthrall you, especially with brand new exclusive thrillers from best-selling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped, like Amy Tintera's Listen for the Lie. With exclusive thrillers from best-selling authors, captivating sound design, and dynamic performances, Audible brings these stories to life like never before. And as a member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Andy Slavitt and Lori Garrett have... Uh been on uh, this for the last three years, really, uh, talking about COVID, and it's all over, right? It's done. We're, we're, it's good. That's what I've read. Yeah. Um, and Lori, you're, you're sanguine. You're happy about pretty much the whole thing, uh, how it's gone down and where we are. 
if your comment is dripping with sarcasm, then I'm with you all the way. Oh, good. You're with me all the way. <laughs> we we just got off uh, surreptitiously. I was listening to Andy on the phone with the White House. Do we want to say who it was? It was somebody who is uh, kind of in charge right now of COVID. And they were trying to figure out exactly the right approach, not so much uh, politically, but really for public health and messaging. What did your conversation say about where we are in terms of this disease? I mean, how many Americans are dying and uh, still and who they are? You know, it's an interesting thing to define what does it mean when the public health emergency ends. And I think what the White House has to do and all policymakers have to do is say, well, well, okay, fine. But what replaces that? What, what does that mean going forward? That's right. And what, when is it in? May 11th or sometime in May? I think that's right, Lori. Is that the exact date? I'm not sure. Yes, that's that actually perfect. is the date when supposedly we're mm-hmm. no longer in a state of emergency. Right. <laughs> and okay. so the question is, you know, what, what replaces it? And to answer that, you've kind of got to ask, well, well what what happened during the public health emergency that isn't going to happen any longer? And, you know, in a nutshell, I'm sure Lori has her own answer, is we took better care of poor people. And uh, we, we, we were required to look out for each other. People who couldn't afford Paxlovid or tests or vaccines didn't have to worry about that. And it was, it was sort of hassle-free. It's sort of the way, you know, some people picture the healthcare system actually working. And now the question is, if you still have... 100,000 or more, 150,000 people a year dying, do you let that fade into the background and say, hey, it just is what it is? You know, these are people that don't have to die. I mean, if we do it right, you know, this is, a, this is an infectious disease. We can prevent people from getting it or at least prevent a lot of people from getting it. You know, I think the point that we were talking about on the call is we have other things where 100,000 people a year die, and it's a pretty big deal. 180,000 people died from opioid or fentanyl overdoses in the last 12 months. Is that still an emergency classified as an emergency? And and what does that even mean, classifying something as an emergency? I mean, it's certainly something we're trying to put a lot of resources against and prevent because those are preventable deaths. Um, They're hard to prevent. You've got to deal with a lot of very complex issues. And in many respects, it should be harder to prevent those deaths than than people who are dying from COVID, um, who are Mm -hmm. largely isolated people who are getting a lot of exposure. They're older. Well, who, who is dying now? It's largely older people. And are these people who have been vaccinated or not? If you're vaccinated, you're multiple times less likely to die at any age group. And if you're boosted, you're vaccinated and boosted, you're even more multiple times less likely to die. And if you can take Paxlovid, which as of now, during the emergency and for a little while afterwards, will be free, you're even more le- less likely to die. And by the time you add all that up, you're pretty unlikely still if you're older or you're immunocompromised, this is still a very threatening illness. And now we're, of course, just talking about the U.S., but you know, we look at 100,000 people or 150,000 people dying every year who could have you know, even 10 more years, 5 more years, 15 more years, 20 more years of life and say, we ought to do something about that. And even if we don't call it an emergency, there's plenty we can do. There's plenty more we can do than, than, than we're doing right now. And that's probably why, why Lori said, I hope you're dripping with sarcasm when you say that. Lori, I don't want you to be sarcastic, but go ahead if you feel like you have to be. (laughs) I I would liken this to, uh, if I may, a metaphor about 
you know, a public marina for ships and small boats, a recreational marina, if you will. And typically, if you have a recreational marina, the poorer you are, the further away from the main piers and mooring your, your boat will be. And as you get way out there, you have to have a rowboat row out to get to your boat, which will be moored to some kind of a a buoy out further and further into the harbor. Now we see the sea level rising. And the further out you are, the worse off your boat is, or maybe it's disappeared entirely. The moorings have come loose. Lori, when you say you see the sea level rising, that sounds to me like a metaphor for covid Well, that's exactly where I'm going. And my point is this. When we see events, drastic climate-related catastrophic events occur, we immediately go into a state of emergency modality, right? So we say, oh my God, look at Houston, it's underwater. But after a while, the same sea level rise that might have sparked a state of emergency mentality in one year, five years later, just looks like, well, that's what's the new normal now. So all the special subsidies, the mobilization of emergency personnel, ways to offset the the economic difference between those who have a, a funky boat way out there and those that have fancy yachts well protected inside the inner harbor, all of a sudden, all of the special systems designed to create some sort of equity disappear. So your concern right now is that some of these protections for poor people are going away. And I think, Andy, you're having the same. That's exactly what you're saying. It's not just that. I mean, it's, it's the protections for poor people disappearing, but it's also the sense of, well, what do we all need to do to protect ourselves is disappearing. It's gone entirely individualistic and a fair degree of hostility. Let's talk about that because we see the governor of Florida basically taking the stance that we overreacted. And there is a lot of, you know, a lot of Americans believing that. And there's some legitimacy to saying, well, maybe we closed schools for too long, or maybe we didn't do that right, because we didn't see the mental health effects on kids. It's there, there, I think there's two ways to, to look at this, Al. One is that politicians like Ron DeSantis they look for what's politically resident and what sells. And clearly, there is a market for the idea that we overreacted. And there's a market for the idea that pointy head elites want to control your life. And he thinks he can run a campaign on that for president. And maybe he can. And, and his party, that's, that's pretty resonant. With- so uh, look, I think one way to look at it is this is just to be expected politics, but we politicize everything. And this is a vain that taps into um, a certain part of the electorate and and therefore is irresponsible. The other way to look at it is we should all be self-reflective, as I think your question indicates, Al, about a sort of an after-action report, uh, because we can keep saying we did the best we could at the time, we made the best decisions we can at the time, and I think we should accept that on its face. But we have to get beyond that, I think, and say, okay, the next time we face this situation, what signals should we be looking for, for example, when we decide to close bars and businesses? What signals should we be looking for when we decide to close schools? You know, of course, every situation is a unicorn and every virus is a bit different. And so it won't be exactly the same. But still, I think if we refuse to be at least a little bit self-critical and say, you know what, in retrospect, 
we could have kept schools open more or longer. Um, we should, or we should have weighed the costs of a lost school year for families that um, where who they really rely on the school for a lot of things, not just education, but but a lot of their social needs. They they rely on the schools to have a place for their kids to go or to be with other kids, and also. These are parents who work, yeah. and if their kids are at home, right. And then there's millions of kids with special needs that that can only get taken care of in school. There's millions of kids that can only get their meals in schools. You know, we don't have to be so locked into a point of view that we can't acknowledge that there are costs on all sides of this equation. It's okay to say we should be careful and take public health emergencies seriously, and still acknowledge that there are real costs. I mean, I think about even someone who may never have been touched by COVID directly. But maybe they started a business 15 years ago that was their lifelong dream, and it closed because of COVID. That's a loss. That's a cost. It's okay to say that it doesn't diminish anybody else's losses. And so I do think that um, I don't want to run so far um, away from this because Ron DeSantis is saying it, that we don't look for ways we could do better. That We as a country, we as a government, we as public health leaders, we as communicators, so that we can be even 20% better next time. And so just because he says it doesn't mean that there aren't some threads of validity to it. Well, you know, this is once in 100 years, so. I'm going to take issue with a few things. First of all, while it is true that the majority of people who are in severe COVID ICU and dying at this time are over 75 years of age, throughout the epidemic, the real issue has been what in medical terms is called comorbidities. Individuals who already have diabetes, already have cardiovascular problems, hypertension, heart disease of one kind or another, already have cancer, already have immunosuppressive drugs in their treatment protocol for something else they may be suffering from. And if there's one thing that we can hear loud and clear from the medical literature and from uh, hospital workers is it, it is that we never really at any point adequately address the comorbidity issue. So we could have been uh, screening people for hypertension and putting them on antihypertensive medication regardless of ability to pay and seeing a huge decrease in excess mortality. This is the second thing I want to raise. We see a very dramatic level of excess mortality, not just in the United States, but all over Western Europe and now in China, uh, in India. So you look at certain years and you say, here's how many people were officially uh, deaths due to COVID. Here's our normal background rate of annual mortality. And now here's this excess box that is not described as COVID and is not considered normal mortality. Maybe it was written down as diabetes. Maybe it was written down as a heart attack. I mean, at this point, we still have millions of Americans who are either not treated at all for their underlying comorbidities or inadequately treated. And so we're seeing people, well, we're that, seeing That's uptick. an ongoing public health problem, right? Yes, I it mean, is. But it was worsened by COVID because so many people fell out of the routine medical system during the COVID pandemic at its peak, because they were afraid to go to hospitals, they were afraid of getting infected, and the system couldn't cope with them. And so we had a huge burden of people, not just Americans, all over the world, who had 
uh, a lack of adequate kidney dialysis treatment, a lack of adequate cancer maintenance care, and so on and so forth. And now we see these upticks in mortality uh, from all of these comorbidities. So, I mean, I consider this to all be uh, secondary to the pandemic itself. The second thing is, you know, if you look around the country and then you see the same thing elsewhere in the world, there are specific subpopulations of people who took a huge toll and continue to be at risk. So, schools are one thing we were all looking at, but let's look at prisons where mortality rates have been astronomical. Let's look at nursing homes, look at senior living communities and certain types of employment settings. And we can see that we still have unresolved issues, including should people be wearing masks in some of these settings? Should they have had the opportunity to have uh, ongoing testing and care even now? That brings up the end of this emergency. Is that going to be happening less? Well, what's going to happen when when everybody gets that magic, you know, here it is, May 11th, there's no more COVID, is we will have decided as a American population, and frankly, Japan is a little ahead of the game on this with, uh, compared to us, they will have also decided by then, uh, and China clearly has decided, well, a certain ongoing background rate of death added burden of mortality among our population is acceptable. And hey, you know, they're dispensable. You know, they're fat people, they're old people, they're poor people. Like, what the hell? Let them die. And so, we've essentially decided that with COVID, we can do exactly what we did with HIV. Okay, well, that's kind of what a lot of people are thinking, (laughs) I guess. I don't know. You brought up China. What happened when they opened up? Well, what's interesting, and Lori knows more about this than I do, it's what they didn't do when they were on lockdown. Now, we all know that they had very severe um, zero COVID policy and they locked down aggressively. And the most surprising thing, and no one seems to have an answer for this, is why during that time were they not able to or even make a really significant effort to vaccinate the population so that when they lifted zero COVID, they, which they would have to do eventually, there's no way to run it forever, that they would um, have a lot less hospital, a lot fewer hospitalizations, deaths, and so forth. And so it was a botched strategy, you know, like everywhere else, the politics of COVID caught up with them. There's something that I think we are learning that other people and experts have known and historians have known for a while, which is that there's only a certain amount of time that people can really tolerate restrictions from COVID. And even people who are, you know, doing their best and care about others and certainly test and don't want to be infected and have been avoiding restaurants and so forth. After a while, that erodes. And it has. I mean, it has over. And Sam Ho, who's who's the guy who's probably most responsible for developing the cure for AIDS and served Magic Johnson. And he and I spent some time together last year. And he told me, you know, after two years of the the fluid that began in 1919, the public decided it was done. And in that third year, and Lori would have more precise figures than I would. There were a lot of deaths from the from the flu, um, but it was the flu was considered over because people just had to move on. And I think there's some notion that there is a precious resource of the public's patience that isn't infinite, and it's why, um, at some level, to Lori's point, you end up with people saying, "Well, those are acceptable deaths." And the reason that they are acceptable is exactly why Lori said, because it's not you; it's people you don't know. 
sadly, we live in a country where we don't really know the person who's driving the truck that's dropping the groceries off at the grocery store. We don't know the farm laborer who is picking the apples. Um, and we don't know the people, you know, the grandparents that are living with them when they come home at night uh, in, a, in a two-bedroom apartment. Those are the people that are getting sick and dying. And, you know, we live in a country where the large majority of people are feeling safe and protected, as they are now. It's, it's not reasonable to think that they're going to uh, put up with a lot of ongoing restrictions. And this is as much a sociology Yeah, I, I think you're right on the money on all problem. of that. I would just add that, you know, way back in tw- late 2020, when a lot of places around the country and all, well, really all over the world were trying to figure out what to do about schools, I spent a lot of time talking and working, trying to work with school teacher unions. And, uh, so you're the you know, they, they weren't eager to see the schools close. Mm. They wanted a policy, something that they could hold on to that would make sense. And I was saying from the very beginning, it didn't make any sense to lock all the school children of the whole country out of classrooms all at once. That what we needed were real cohort studies that allowed us to monitor school district by school district. What was going on? What's the community level of transmission? Are kids bringing it in the classroom? Are they taking it from the classroom home? Instead, we had massive uncertainty and a real lack of uh, money dedicated to the kind of studies we needed on a rapid basis that could answer those sorts of basic epidemiology questions. And so we went to this blanket strategy of masking or closing schools or closing restaurants or everybody eats outside shivering in the cold or whatever we came up with. And of course, you had opposition. And of course, whenever you mandate that people have to behave in some way they don't want to behave, eventually they start saying no. And, you know, eventually certain opportunistic political leaders will lead the charge in saying no because they see the advantage to their careers in being known as the guy that shot down the mask policy and shot down the vaccine mandate and whatever it may be. But I I think that we have to acknowledge that we, and when I say we, it's not just America, it's all over the world. We miss the boat on doing the kind of basic public health epidemiology that is designed to be applied for utility in designing public policy on a rapid basis. Could that have been done? better. Yes, of course. We made, look, we made several kinds of mistakes. We clearly go chapter and verse, and I think the three of us have on the show before, um, Trump administration purposely burying its head in the sand and hoping this would just go away. That was an unpredicted level of uh, mistake. But even, even if he hadn't, there were two other types of mistakes. There were pure execution errors from the CDC and others getting tests wrong, et cetera. That, that, that you was the earliest... The earliest errors. errors and say, hey, um, uh, we were out of practice. We thought uh, this would never come here. We believed this was a problem that only happened in Africa and Asia. And uh, we were unprepared. And so no doubt we could have done that better. But there's, a, there's an additional thing that we learned that we could have done better, which is a lot of these sociological and psychological barriers. The most telling conversation I had was with a guy named Baruch Fishoff. I don't know if you know him. This guy is um, basically sort of a behavioral psychologist when it comes to how people react 
to large-scale situations. And I talked to him early in 2020, and he darn near predicted everything that was going to happen in terms of public reaction. At the time, I didn't know whether to believe or not believe, but I found it fascinating. You know, things like people believe they've got a right to this to the status quo, and when the status quo changes on them, they're, they're angry at whoever's changed it. A lot of different things yeah, that I think- That's it, not surprising. That's not surprising, but it was interesting that there was a body of work mm-hmm. about it that we didn't quite understand, or if we understood it, we might have put things in practice a little bit differently. We might have been a little bit more thoughtful, deliberate about it all. But I will say one other thing, and this is a bit of a counterfactual conversation, Al, which is we did do something right. We got an mRNA vaccine and we got it uh, very, very, very quickly. We got it within a year. But if you remember, part of what was scary during 2020 was we didn't know that was going to happen. We know it now. But during 2020, when we were all scared to death, we didn't have a vaccine. We had thousands of people dying every day. We didn't know if that was going to go on for another five years. And so our behavior in retrospect um, may seem odd because in the course of looking back on history, we of course know that we had a vaccine at the end of 2020 and that started to change things pretty dramatically. But because we didn't know it at the time, um, there was all sorts of things that look in retrospect to be overreactions or people will now say, why are people so fearful? Um, and the reality is, we, you know, we very much could be in a situation, we could have been in a situation where the mRNA vaccine wasn't available or didn't work. We're sitting here today in 2023, it could, be, it could have felt exactly like it felt in 2020. We could have been going through three years of this stuff. It was that uncertainty that caused, I think, a lot of the stress and a lot of the trauma and, and some of the mental health effects that, that linger to this day. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Andy and Lori. After investing billions to light up our network, T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, right now, you can switch, keep your phone, and we'll pay it off up to $800. See how you can save on every plan versus Verizon and AT&T at T-Mobile.com slash across America. Up to four lines via virtual prepaid card. Allowed 15 days. Qualifying unlocked device credit service ported 90 plus days with device and eligible carrier and timely redemption required. Card has no cash access and expires in six months. Support for this show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Loom help power the collaboration needed for teams to accomplish what would otherwise be impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian software for everything, from space exploration and green energy to delivering pizzas and podcasts. Whether you're a team of two, 200 or 2 million, Atlassian Software is built to help keep you connected and moving together as one. We're back with Andy Slavitt and Lori Garrett. How is this going to be politicized? I mean, we started to see what DeSantis is doing is really very much demagoguing this in terms of. And I also like to know to what extent has that killed people in terms of vaccine denial and all that kind of stuff? Well, we have very clear data from multiple studies. I mean, this isn't any one single study, but multiple studies have shown very clear differences in excess mortality and directly ascribed COVID mortality in the United States 
between blue states and red states. We, I mean, I don't know that we can say a given speech by Ron DeSantis killed X number of people. I think that would be an impossible thing to say. But what we can say is that leadership matters in all public health disasters. And if leadership is consistently counter-messaging the dominant consensus view in the scientific and public health communities and casting doubts and aspersions on all of the tactical solutions that we have for an epidemic, then you're going to see people suffer. To, to what extent does the red state, blue state have to do with public health in these or you know, hospitals and equipment yeah. and density of population? I, 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 I think it's a good question. I, I, I wouldn't start there. I'd start closer to where Lori was. I think if I were going to say, you know, who, who has blood on their hands, I'd probably start with your very dear friends at Fox Primetime. I'd start with Tucker Carlson. Number one cause of death in America the last three years. Tucker, Tucker Carlson. Carlson. Yeah, yeah and, and, uh, among other things. Uh, as, as we now know from another ex- incident, from how we, what we've now seen that he was saying around January 6th, he says things he knows not to be true. And he says things he knows not to be true to an audience that eats it up. And um, I think if you got your news from Fox News, and I know it's easy to blame Facebook and Twitter and, and social media, but I wonder why people blame social media and don't blame the actual media that, that just went out there and spread misinformation and brought vaccine deniers on their show. And you out. know that at Fox, they got vaccinated. You know, they, they had, had to, to right? Yeah. The, the, to come into the office or you had to show, have a right. negative test. And- right. But like the people, I mean, look, I don't want to generalize, but if I was going to generalize, I'd say the people who had concerns about the vaccine because they had questions, uh, very understandable. I want to know about well, how the vaccine, what the reactions are to the vaccine. I want to know, I want to see this vaccine in use for a little bit longer. But I, they were you know, pretty I, open about that, yeah, right? I, I, I mean, I, they were very... I'm African-American and I, and I think the history of country, this country and vaccines is troubling. We ought to be very patient, sympathetic, and understanding, and not bully people who have legitimate questions. But there's another line that's crossed when people are knowingly spreading lies. And misinformation is a nice word. Disinformation is a nice word. But lies is really what it is. Right. And lies that. that they're making money off of. Didn't you write a book on that once? <laughs> I, uh, I did. This is way back, though, when calling people liars was not as... It was shocking. But it was a similar phenomenon you were writing about. Well, I was writing partly about the war in Iraq and, yep. and, uh, and other, other kinds. Just the phenomenon of... And I, it, and was I, Fox. it was Fox. It was Fox. Yeah. Yeah. I, I read the book several times. It was one of the first books my oldest son read. And you were documenting people saying things they knew not to be true on that network for ratings. Of course, the big lie uh, in January 6th. Is, and right. we just saw that, the right. Dominion case. Exactly. So there's no there's no shame any longer in saying what you need to say, as Lori says, to make money or for ratings, et cetera. And I don't know. We will never know what percentage of people that didn't get vaccinated and ultimately died um, did that as a result of. Oh, actually, there is. Andy, there was actually a really good study done by I believe it was the Pew Trust that surveyed attitudes towards vaccination, decisions to not agree to vaccination, and what media were your primary news sources, and it tracked exactly with Fox News. I'd like to pose a question to Andy and see how what your react would be. Right now, according to uh, 
the databases that we have where uh, scientists from all over the world submit genomic sequences for strains of COVID that SARS-CoV-2 that they have found in their population. We've now for the first time reached the point for the first time since early 2020, where every single human being that's getting newly infected on earth is getting newly infected with the same clade of COVID. It's all Omicron, a 100% global Omicron epidemic. And so all the original alpha, beta, delta, all those are now extinct, except in freezers in laboratories. And presumably, uh, the whole global population of humans, through a combination of whatever booster vaccines they're receiving and whatever infections they've been exposed to, is becoming um, more Omicron adapted and immune. But the virus is also very clearly evolving as an immune escape virus. And so as the global pressure of the human population towards an Omicron, all the Omicron variants gets higher, the virus is being pushed to evolve outside of that. And I think, Andy, we could very well be in a situation some weeks, months, maybe even years from now, where we experience a wave of COVID that is sufficiently evolved away from any of the currently recognizable immune forms that our vaccines are rendered less effective, if not ineffective, and we see a new, altogether new surge in the human population. Then what do we do? Well, that's, that's the nightmare. Well, you know, as I think your question is probably implies, that if we were sufficiently investing resources and not living in this world, we either ignore it or panic when it happens. You know, we could develop the capability, not just for COVID, but for, for other types of viruses to be able to very rapidly develop new vaccines. What that requires is it requires a commitment by the country that this is a national priority to be prepared for something like this. Um, it requires the Congress to provide continued funding, and not just for vaccines, but for the ability to turn that capability on for testing and therapeutics. And, and applied in, in Lori's point is that you have to be continuing to invest in what people call surveillance. It's not a word people like, but in monitoring, whether it's wastewater or genomic testing or other things so that you can stay on top of things. Look, for, for very low frequency, high, but high impact events, you need a strategy. And the strategy has to be either make continued smart investments or put your head in the sand and hope it doesn't happen. And the scenario that Lori lays out is far above a zero probability uh, from happening. Let me steer off to an incredibly different area. Yeah. And that's the uh, House uh, committee that's going to be uh, looking into going after Fauci. Uh, they are going to do that, right? Is that? Oh, yeah. Seem 100%. The most effective exploitation, I think, of uh, every little tiny crack they could find in government policy and the scientific study of COVID has been among libertarians. They have a variety of institutes and so on. And of course, they have a senator, Rand Paul, and they are 
absolutely opposed to any government mandate of any kind. You can't make me get vaccinated. You can't make me wear a mask. You can't make me close my business, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Frankly, they're even opposed to seatbelts. They have gone all out. And you've seen in one hearing after another shouting matches, frankly, between Rand Paul and Tony Fauci. His agenda is much bigger than the Goff question. It is, I dispute the scientific veracity of every single measure undertaken to control COVID. And I blame Tony Fauci for, or the CDC or fill in the blank for making those uh, mandates. And here's the thing. Rand Paul, for his audience, doesn't need proof. So this is not about finding out the truth. All he needs is an insinuation. Because for people who um, have a predetermined belief or ideology, like Lori talked about, that's a very attractive idea. And so if it's possible, if you can imagine a situation where it's possible that there's a chain of events that uh, had this happen because someone was trying uh, to do something irresponsible from a, the government standpoint, then all you have to do is is basically say it enough times, and it becomes something that pe- a certain number of people are going to believe. The new order of business is to make people defend things they didn't do, and mm-hmm. that exactly, that's, and that's exactly what they're trying to do to Tony Fauci is just put him on the defensive because the fact that he is defending in, in itself will be a sign for Rand Paul's audience that, that he's guilty. And that's why they'll probably try to do this hearing, these hearings. A hundred percent. And that's the, and it's the same exact reason why Tucker Carlson will say that uh, January 6th was all cooked up by the elites. Well, now he's got the footage to he's prove got it. Footage to, to prove it, right? Uh, all, he has to do, cause he, all he needs to do is have to prove it. All he has to do is insinuate. This person is Antifa. <laughs> well, or he'll just use the negatives and say, this is Black Lives Matter. Right. You know. Right. And look, those are the forces in the country, um, in the world right now today, that we have to fight against. Um, and we have to fight against because they're dangerous. We have to fight against because there are people that get wrapped up in them. And there are people that I think very innocently will hear those things, believe them to be true, spread them then from their mouth to the people they know, and then it becomes, well, hey, my reliable cousin, friend, brother, whoever says this, and I've also heard it from another place, someone who happens to watch the same TV show or watch the same hearing, and then it becomes gospel. And I think there are communities in the country, and this is the data that Lori was talking about and that you were asking about, Al, there, there are places in the country where people watch the same TV shows they listen to the same people, they hear the same things, they hear the same messages over and over again, and they're able to create th- this distorted reality. And we have pretty good evidence that the people who are distorting reality know they're doing it. They know they're saying, hey, that shooting of a bunch of school kids was a performance play. They know they're lying. And that's partly what we've been up against in COVID and partly what we're up against in society. Well, and I, you know, Andy, I want to bounce off that all brilliant and add two things. First of all, in 2020, when COVID first arrived on these shores, the opposition to mandates, the big liars were caught off guard. They didn't have their act together. It took them a while. And of course, they, they were aided and abetted by the president at the time, who was more than willing to, you know, claim it was the China virus and so on. 
But now they've honed their skill set. They're much better at casting doubt on science, casting doubt on vaccines, casting doubt on all public health mandates. And, and they're playing off people's fatigue. Oh, yes. But they're also, they have a more refined, honed messaging uh, that overlaps into some evangelical messaging and into some of the larger red state, blue state division messaging and into innuendos about racial issues uh, so that all the agendas become confluent. And the second thing I would add to what Andy was saying that was so smart is that if we want an example, like a living experiment to watch that will tell us what big lies really look like. All we have to do today is watch Russian television and see the big lies they're telling the people of Russia about the people of Ukraine, about the whole, you know, this alleged NATO and American attack and our desires to rapaciously devour the great mother Russia. You know, it's almost the opposite of what's happening, what they're saying. Yeah. <laughs> have you noticed? I mean, here we are at the one-year point on a lie that has been truly catastrophic and that has killed God knows how many people. Unbelievably and, and, awful. And he has honed his messaging, he being Putin. And also egged on, not in a small part, by Tucker Carlson. Yes. Oddly enough. And uh, you can point to pretty much anything which is racial stuff, great replacement. Well... Well, the, the, this has become a podcast now about uh, Fox and Tucker, but unfortunately, that's that's a lot of stuff these days. Well, and look, this is a situation. The reason we're talking about Fox, I think, is in the doing a retrospective. You know, the primary bad guy here is the virus itself. And we can make up Tony Fauci and we can make up what public health people did wrong and we can make up a whole bunch of things. But that's just our acting on our frustration uh, on us fact that we had it was been a really terrible situation um, and it, it inflicted a lot of harm on people and sometimes people want someone to be angry at. But in my mind, there are a handful of villains, but small handful, and it's the people who acted in bad faith, knowingly lied, could have acted to save lives and didn't, as as Trump could have easily done in January of 2020 when he knew what was coming and as he told. Uh, Bob Woodward, you know, there, there's a handful of people who I think are people that unfortunately we're going to have to be prepared to deal with in situations of life and death that we're going to be able to be prepared to deal with. And again, I think those democracy. people are playing off the fatigue that we've had from these three right. years. And, and, and they're, they're profiting in ways that are unusual. Um, we're, you know, we're used to thinking about profit one way, but there's all kinds of social profit for being an influencer these days. Mm -hmm. There's all kinds of uh, profit for being heard and getting clicks and likes. And um, your stock prices. Stock because, prices. Yeah. Don't ratings. let this stuff, don't let this stuff uh, about Dominion being a lie. That's driving our stock down. If right. we can right. let that exactly. out. Exactly. Exactly. But even at a smaller scale, like you ask, well, why, why, we ask, why do people spread misinformation or disinformation knowingly? It, you know, these people found themselves, some of these people found themselves relevant, more relevant than they've ever been before um, because they had a set of people that were following them and believing them and they were getting invited on TV shows. One of them ran for governor in Minnesota, purely on the strength of just quite frankly, a full fledged, complete wacko. 
um, who was basically saying this COVID's not killing people. It's ventilators that are killing people. He, he got his party's nomination to run for governor. So you, we have to account for that. If we were, you know, at a national security setting, Al, and we were red teaming the situation again, if we were saying there's a pandemic here, we would have to play out some of these wild cards of people just acting with malice uh, for some sort of personal attention seeking gain and profit. And that's an externality that I don't think we necessarily contemplated going into this pandemic. And it's something I, I don't know if we know how to get a handle on. And that's one of the most frustrating aspects of seeing this. Well, I think what you're, what you're getting at is the difference between sort of fog of war errors made in trying mm -hmm. to assess a situation around you in the heat of panic and with lack of adequate information. It made in good faith. Compelled to take policy steps, you know, with imperfect data at hand versus quite deliberately manipulating whatever data you did have to meet and, and mold into a specific narrative that you were trying to promote. And what's interesting about it is the reward of that and that the reward of that is rewarded. <laughs> and that's, uh, that the reward of it continues. is that you, be, that you are Tucker Carlson, the number one talk television yep. host in the United States of America. And as exposed as he is in all of these lies and of all the stuff that came out on the Dominion thing, it probably it doesn't matter. And that's a, that's a very upbeat note to end on. So, but we're we're always trying to fight that. But and so, and Lori, thank you for for doing that, and Andy, you as well. Thank Thanks, you, Al. Al. Well, I I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. If you like the Al Franken podcast, you can listen to all episodes ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Summer is here and adventures await. Wondery and Tinkercast are teaming up to bring you a summer of wow with new episodes of your favorite podcasts. Go on an epic adventure with Portuga the Pirate as she takes a road-tripping adventure across the country on Little Stories Everywhere. Immerse yourself in the life of someone amazing and listen closely for clues to guess who this person is on Who's Amazing Life. Listen to Wow in the World to discover something new about science, technology, and innovation and the world around us. This summer, bring your imagination out into the world and find your wow. Visit Wondery.com slash Summer of Wow to find new episodes of your favorite shows and to download scavenger hunts for the entire family. How much do you really know about black history? Like, really, really know. Wondery's new podcast, Black History For Real, weaves black history's most overlooked figures back into their rightful place in culture and the world at large. Listen to Black History For Real on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts.